Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. February 1st, 2024, the Will the Carroll Verdict Hurt Trump edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. Joining me is John Dickerson. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. You know, there there is a guy named Big John Dickerson. He's a blues player. I, I would like for like a day to be Big John Dickerson because then that would mean I was a, an accomplished blues musician. And that's kind of one of the things I've always wanted to be and yet could never achieve. Instead, you are little John Dickerson. Uh, and, and then from New Haven, medium-sized Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. There is a big Emily Bazelon and a little Emily Bazelon. You're the Goldilocks Emily Bazelon. I'll take it. Hi, everybody. Can I also just say Big John Dickerson has a blues chamber, his band. It's Big John Dickerson and the Blues Chamber, which is not only a guy named Big John Dickerson, but he's got his own blues chamber. <laughs> One day when you've truly made it, we'll get you a blues I chamber. Know, exactly. I don't even have I don't even have an anteroom. I don't have a vestibule. But he's got an entire blues chamber. <laughs> this week on the gap. <laughs> Eugene the violins Carroll. are playing. <laughs> not in the blues chamber, they're not. <laughs> no, there they're are definitely not. no violins in the blues chamber. I think there are violins chamber. anyway in the blues chamber. <laughs> Eugene Carroll wins an $83 million jury verdict against Trump. Will it cost him anything, either financially or politically? Then, Emily's extraordinary history of pre-1948 Palestine in the New York Times Magazine is out uh, we will talk about the 30 years that set the table for the last 75 years of conflict in that region. Then what is techno-authoritarianism and is it the ideology of Silicon Valley? We'll have a conversation with Adrienne LaFrance of The Atlantic about her interesting article about that. Plus we'll have cocktail chatter. Eugene Carroll was awarded more than $83 million by a nine-person jury in New York, much more than she asked for, really, as compensation for Trump's defamation of her. Trump had already lost a separate civil trial about whether he had sexually assaulted her. The jury had found that he had. This trial had to do with his relentless smearing of her after she had said that he had done it. It's a huge penalty in the only language that Trump truly understands, but he doesn't have to pay it just yet. There's plenty of time for appeals, though he does have to post some bond. So, Emily, what did the jury find? And uh, how long till Trump might actually have to pay it? Eugene Carroll's lawyer asked the jury to penalize Trump in a way that he would stop smearing her and feel the consequences. And he had given a deposition in this uh, case about how many gazillions of dollars he has because he kind of can't resist that. Right. It's so core to his self-image to portray himself as super wealthy that he set himself up. For a jury award like this, once the jury decided that he needed to actually have consequences that would matter to him. Um, like you said, he'll have to post bond during appeal. Uh, and so in some sense, he'll feel the loss of that money, at least temporarily. It's possible that on appeal, the amount will get knocked down. Although $83 million is actually within kind of ranges of single-digit multiples of the basic comp compensatory damages and reputational damages award that was like $18 million. So $18 million of it was for 
actual pain and suffering. And then the punitive damages are on top of that as a punishment. What is the pain and suffering? What is it that Trump is now found to have done to Carol that is a civil tort that she deserves compensation for? It's defamation. It's that all of his saying that she was lying about him sexually assaulting her constituted defamation, that it was ruinous of her character and of her reputation in a way that was not warranted by the facts. And, you know, I've seen some complaining about this verdict, this idea that, well, Trump has to be able to profess his innocence. And sure, that's true. But he went so far beyond saying, I did not do this, um, to, you know, super scurrilous, uh, cruel kinds of statements that went on and on that subjected her to an enormous amount of targeting and harassment. She now sleeps with a gun by her bed, which, you know, is not like a melodramatic response to all the outpouring of hatred she has gotten for his supporters. And obviously he knows his power in this realm. He was doing it during the trial. And it's been interesting that since the verdict, he has, of course, been complaining about the case and claiming it's a witch hunt naturally. But he has not been going after her personally. And so it's possible that at least at the moment, this is having the desired effect. She's a brave lady. When you say desired effect, I mean, he's still defaming her. He is. I thought he stopped actually going after her personally. Is that wrong? He basically said the the, he didn't do I mean, he he didn't actually target her specifically on Wednesday evening. um, But he basically said everything else about the case. Well, sure. That's fine, right? That's not defamatory. Defamation is about going after someone individually. And it's a kind of speech that has been illegal from time immemorial, illegal in in terms of you can sue over it, right? So there's lots of room for free speech that complains about lots of things, which is not speaking lies that are super ruinous to one person. So John, we've talked repeatedly in the past few months about polling suggesting a certain fraction of the electorate would be put off by a Trump criminal conviction. This is at least the third finding of civil misbehavior by him. There was the original finding with Carol. There's this finding. There is the the um, Trump business that is being sued in, in New York uh, and where he might face a penalty of up to $370 million. So the Trump organization might face a penalty up to $370 million and be barred from doing business in New York because of lies they've told. Um, do any of these civil cases have political sting as far as you can tell? Well, if any of them do, this would be the one because one of the groups that Trump did poorly with in 2020 and needed to win was suburban women. Um, and every time, it's not just the, the verdict, um, it's the details of the case. And every time he is asked about it and every time Republicans are asked about it, uh, they have to tie themselves into knots. You saw Senator Tim Scott asked on ABC's This Week about this. Um, the question was, you know, does this give you a pause? And they basically like spun around and did everything but answer the question. You know, the- Myself and all the voters that support uh, Donald Trump supports a return to normalcy as it relates to what affects their kitchen table. The average person in our country, Martha, isn't, they're not talking about lawsuits. As a matter of fact, what I have seen, however, is that the perception that the legal system is being weaponized against Donald Trump is actually increasing his poll numbers. I, I, I understand that, but this was... They were jury trials. They were jury trials. They started uh, when Donald Trump was president. You, that, does, that gives you no pause whatsoever. I don't have a 
the Democrats don't pause when they think about Hunter Biden and the challenges that, that he brings to his father. The one thing I think the electorate is thinking about most often is how in the world will the next president impact my quality of life? How will America regain its standing in this world? They were better off under Trump, and they're looking for four more years of low inflation, low crime, low unemployment, and high enthusiasm for our country. Which, by the way, and this is obviously one of the um, major stories of the Trump campaign, is that implicit in defending him and implicit in saying you'll vote for him even if he's convicted is um, is undermining the rule of law across multiple jurisdictions. Um, so that's required. Anyway, so all of this will continue to be a relevant question from now until the election. And each time it's asked of either Trump or his supporters, it offers an opportunity to um, be a problem and to remind um, and obviously, there's the context of the uh, Access Hollywood tape um, to remind those kinds of voters that that Trump needs um, that this is a core part of his personality. There's the way he's reacting to Nikki Haley and her challenge to him. There's the long litany of attacks he has made on women who have challenged him on perfectly reasonable grounds in which he went after their ethnicity, their looks, and so forth. Um, that tends to be a pretty mountainous amount of effort that this story constantly pokes at. And I would just remind that there was a period in 2017 when Trump was being accused by a variety of, you know, there are lots of women who have accused him of, of um, sexual assault. And Nikki Haley, um, who was then the ambassador to the UN, said um, uh, that these women should be heard. And it caused um, uh, something of a stir at the time. Um, that is the kind of stir um you know, by which I mean it was a day-long story as as uh, people reacted to that. That's the kind of thing that any day during the campaign could come up. And uh, and that's not great uh, for Donald Trump. And, and obviously, it's not the only thing that could come up. He's got those other criminal trials. Emily, do you think, are you with John that this, of all the civil ones, might stick? Or that it, has this all been priced into Trump already? Um, I think it's fairly priced in, but I think that E. Jean Carroll has been this really strong figure who has just plotted ahead in challenging him. And there are women who are going to identify with her. I don't know if there are enough of them, but it does seem like John's right. They're exactly the people who some of them are the people who Trump would need. And if you're a Trump supporter, you don't want it to be priced in because priced in was the guy who lost in 2020 and the guy whose candidates lost in 2022. I mean, when we say priced in, one of the questions of this election is whether he's just winning a primary of a very small vote or whether he can actually win in a general election. If it's priced in the way it has been in the general election, that's not good news for him. I admire Eugene Carroll tremendously. I think it was really bold of her to do what she's done. Um, and I hope she gets this money. But there's a way there's something happening in the American system that is unsettling to me. And you see it with Trump. You see it with Alex Jones. You see it with Fox news, which is that there are a certain category of people, organizations for whom, for which the benefits of being monstrous and, and, and attacking people and causing people harm outweighs the costs the potential costs and the ability to put off the judgment uh, makes it pretty easy. What Alex Jones has done in the face of the Sandy Hook 
judgments, the billion dollar insanity hooks is both it's disgusting and it's also incredibly demoralizing. The incapacity of the American legal system to effectively punish him is it's really confusing to me. So you're talking now about him hiding his assets. He's, yeah. I mean, here's a guy who's been found repeatedly to 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 have you know wronged people and to owe them in in the most grotesque ways and to owe them a billion dollars and yet he lives high on the hog they're seeing none of it they're seeing none of the money that they are due and even though more or less final judgments have been rendered and i just don't i just don't understand that that's one kind of case the fox case is we'll pay a billion dollars but continue you know we can continue to do whatever we want and trump i feel like well he may or may not pay this $83 million. I don't think he's going to spend his life now not saying disgusting things about people. I mean, I think there's some different and interesting problems. I, I mean, I loved this is such a great topic. You know, the the attack problem set aside like how Alex Jones is kind of slipping the noose of this judgment. The attack problem is about speech, right? If your method of attack involves speech, and we want to continue to give broad protections for speech, we have defamation as a tool against that. What we don't have a really good way of grappling with is setting a whole mob after people. It's all the other people who you instigate who then can like truly intimidate, threaten, make people's lives miserable. Like that exponentially multiplying factor is not something I think that we have figured out how to deal with in the legal system. And there would be really, you know, a downside to trying to address it more, right? Because then you would be chilling a lot of speech. Um, but there is no question that if you're on the receiving end of the kinds of abuse, verbal, obviously, abuse that um, someone like E. Jean Carroll is taking, and you can think of other examples of this, it's really, really destabilizing and harmful. The Trump defense in all cases is this is a political vendetta driven by Joe Biden, no matter whether this is a private civil case or it's one of these criminal cases, does this continue to have traction, you know, as, as the verdicts pile up? Well, we don't know if it has traction. Um, what we know is that that's where, that's where Trump will always go. And it was um, striking to see Lankford and um, Tim Scott essentially play footsie with that idea because it's so damaging and dangerous um, because it, it undermines the rule of law everywhere. Um, it reinforces this idea that if things don't go your way, whether it's in the courts or with an election, you get to make up your own rules. And that's the, that opens up the lane for violence because it both kind of um, pre-approves of the violence. And it also suggests there are dark forces and people with power who are doing this and breaking the rules themselves. Um, so it um, creates the permission structure and then motivates you to act outside the lanes. So as a, as a participant in a democracy, you should stay away from that, like violently stay away from it. And yet it is the place that these people who know better are gravitating towards. So that's really, that's extremely, um, it's extremely dangerous. And it's also dangerous because it's chilling for anybody on uh, the Republican side who might want to speak out, by which I mean, uh, Mitt Romney, I reread um, McKay Coppins' book because I was interviewing him for something. And 
you know, Romney had to spend $5,000 a day in security for himself and his family because he voted against, uh, he voted for Trump's conviction in the Senate through the legal mechanism uh, for punishing Trump for something that all the leaders of the Republican Party said he was responsible for, which was the attack on the Capitol. And so it wasn't going around. It wasn't Joe Biden making, you know, Mitt Romney uh, uh, do this. It wasn't Joe Biden who marched on the uh Capitol on the 6th of January. And yet um, he had to spend $5,000. And he says that other senators said, I would have voted to convict, but I just couldn't do that to my family. And I was worried about my own personal safety. Um, That's the logical conclusion of these claims that dark forces are behind all of these um, uh, indictments and that the system for adjudicating claims is phony and false. And that's real bad. It's real bad. Emily, close us out with just an update on where these criminal trials stand. Do we foresee any of them starting in the near future? Well, the Supreme Court has to uh, get rid of the roadblock that's in front of the federal suit over the overturning of the election. The Georgia case is out further in the future. And the Mar-a-Lago case has a judge who seems to be in no hurry whatsoever. Um, It's the... New York She's hush in money. an anti-hurry. Yeah, exactly. It's the New York hush money case that is actually like might be on deck, which seems really out of order. The Georgia prosecutors need to get themselves together and get that trial going. That's the one that has to happen. That's the only one that can reasonably happen. And yeah, they really but there's so many defendants in that case. Like it's the big sprawling one. Do you guys still think it's the case that of all of the cases, if you're Donald Trump, the, the case you want to come up first is the New York hush money trial because it's oh, the weakest. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I want to give a thank you to our Slate Plus listeners. You have helped us keep going on the GabFest for so long by supporting us. And you get lots of great stuff for being a member. Bonus segments of every episode's discount to live shows. We're just planning our live show roster for 2024. No hitting the paywall on the Slate site, much more. And this week for our Slate Plus segment, we're going to talk about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And we're going to give away a pair of floor seats to the Arrow show to two lucky Slate Plus members. Um, so if you are a member, thank you. Enjoy it. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. We're actually not going to give away a pair of tickets. That is a lie. That was just that was just advertising. I just want to add one prompt for listeners. We are going to try something a little different in some upcoming Slate Plus segments. We want to um, interview local journalists about good work that they're doing. And we would love ideas. So send us the sort of sparkling, fun story from anywhere in the United States that a local journalist produced or the deep, um, hard-hitting investigation. We're up for really anything. And please send us your work. Don't be shy. Feel like if you're a local journalist and you're doing something and you want to come on the GabFest and talk with us about it, we would love to hear from you. Please send um, ideas for upcoming segments to gabfest at slate.com. That's gabfest at slate.com. Emily, a few months ago, you talked here about a New York Times roundtable you had convened where you moderated a conversation among scholars about what had happened in Israel and the Palestinian territories since the 1990s to continue such an irreconcilable conflict. Uh, Because you are a masochist, you have now returned (laughs) to the well, like the Jewish matriarchs of yore. You've gone back to the well and gone back deeper into the history of this region. You've talked to six scholars, three Palestinian 
two Israeli, one Canadian or maybe not even Canadian, Canadian, American, something Canadian American about the period between 1920 and 1948 when the British mandate of Palestine, an area inhabited by Arabs and Jews, was divided up, was was changed by immigration of Jews fleeing from Europe, was riven by various different civil conflicts, was abandoned by Britain, was then divided up by the UN and ultimately exploded in the war that established or a war around the time of the establishing of the state of Israel, uh, which resulted in 700,000 Palestinians being driven from their homes and set the table for the continuing conflict we live with today. It, that was an ambitious thing you took on, Emily. First of all, I, 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 as I texted you yesterday, I don't even know how the fuck you did this because I would not, this is not for the, 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 the faint of heart. It's thankless. Why did you undertake this extremely thankless, thankless exploration into history, which you will no Wait. doubt be spend the rest of the week just getting hate mail for? Wait, John, defend me here. I know, I know. It's so. I so mean, I'm thanking you. Hey, what do you I mean? Thank you. No. I think it's so, amazing. I know, but, but I think like, people are going to be uncertain to follow you down the garden I learned path. So You've just much. Gone down. I've learned I know, so much from these two I round think, tables. I right, think it's but, journalism at its finest, but like, but man, what, would I not want to do it? The re- and the reason, David, I think, and Emily and David, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are so many pitfalls because one of the things, I- even in defining what what would seem like a historical fact in a period in 1948, the first thing that happened to me, or first thing that happens is someone says, no, 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 you have to go back to 1920. So, okay, well, all right, now we're back in 1920. Now you are literally more than 100 years ago. And, the, and each individual fact that you might put forward as the initial building block for further learning about what is events taking place 100 years ago is under serious dispute and can cause real misunderstanding. And then that leads to motive judging and questioning. Is that what you're saying, David? In other words, yeah. it's a minefield yeah. Yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And now and Emily's going to have to go back difficult. and do like the one from AD 40 to AD 62. Right. No, you're going to be back. <laughs> the round table. I need a round table of right. AD 40 yeah. to AD 62. The, the ultimate conclusion can't of call these, it AD. Can't even call it AD. The Sorry. Conclu- the conclusion of this is that sometime Emily's going to start one by saying, first, the earth cooled. And then, you know, you're going to have to go back to the very beginning of time. But yeah, so that's why David is saying this is such a tricky thing is to build a common vocabulary to go forward is itself incredibly difficult and fraud and human lives are at stake in the most gruesome way in the present, which freights all of this stuff, which was already supercharged with extra, extra emotional weight. Is that what we're talking about? That's a go, great Emily. segment. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Emily, do you like a word? Do you like a Say one thing. Well, I'm just trying to unfuck what you said. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So um, I hope that we gave an answer to your question about why in the introduction where we said that one year in 1948 matters more than any other for determining the current shape of the conflict and its intractable nature. And we wanted to understand what happened in 1948. And obviously, in order to do that, you have to look at the events that are leading up to it. We could have started in a lot of other places. Yes, we could have gone back to ancient times. 1920 is when the British take over, and they are a really important factor in what happens next. Like their colonialism is this kind of change agent. I mean, in a sense, the beginning of the this period of... Um, is the history of Israel and Palestine is about the end of World War One. I. I mean, I frankly learned a lot about this, like what happens at the end of World War One and even during World War One is that 
the Western Allied powers, particularly Britain and France, are carving up the Middle East. They're coming in at the end of the Ottoman Empire. They defeat the Ottomans. And this vast expanse of territory, you could go from Damascus and Jerusalem to Baghdad without crossing a border. They are changing its entire makeup. And the British make deals along the way to, you know, a Muslim leader who helps them foment rebellion against the Ottoman. They promise his son a whole kingdom. Then that guy ends up as this kind of king of Iraq, but not getting Syria and Jerusalem um, in the way that um, he and other Arabs thought they had been promised. Instead, the British and the French get these mandates from the League of Nations, this first intergovernmental body. And that kind of starts off this period of these two competing narratives of nationalism, the Zionist narrative and the Palestinian Arab narrative. The Zionists have basically shown up starting around 1904, and they are trying to establish um, a homeland for Jews in their ancient, um, you know, homeland. And they're responding to global anti-Semitism. They're saying global anti-Semitism is this enormous affliction. We need our own place to go. We're going back to where we came from. We left a long time ago, but we're coming back. And that is like, obviously something that the people who are living on that land when they show up are going to have a lot of feelings about. Um, And so when the British come as this colonial power, these kind of three uh, different players start to fight it out. And then you also have, and this I also needed to learn so much about, you have the other Arab powers surrounding Um, You know, you have Egypt and Syria, Iraq, um, you have mandates for the French in Syria and Lebanon, but you also have these kind of regional set of players who are also um, really implicated in in all of the bloodshed and suffering that follows. A couple of things uh, struck me. I mean, first of all, as uh, just for those who were create, I mean, global anti-Semitism, just because anti-Semitism has all kinds of definitions for people right now. I mean, there were basically efforts to extinguish and kill Jews in neighborhoods in Russia and Eastern Europe. Like that's, in other words, it wasn't just some college kids um, protesting, you know, that was causing this desire for uh, a Jewish homeland. Um, and then the second thing is the, the colonialism piece of it, the, basically the British deciding um, on the side of the Jews, essentially felt like in the, in the conversation that you had, it was like, well, the, like the books were cooked from the start in terms of um, the Arabs in that territorial area, not having always being kind of on the short end of the agreement, like that the, the complaints uh, that exist today felt very consistent with the complaints in 1920 in terms of the British basically deciding the way things were going to go and that the Palestinians um, uh, were again on the short end of that original arrangement and could never get on the right, correct side of it. Yeah. I mean, there is this soft colonialism that is going on. I mean, (laughs) there also are these fundamental kind of misunderstandings, right? I mean, the Palestinians, and they start, I'm using that word because they start to have a kind of sense of national identity that's both pan-Arab and specific to Palestine in the 1920s. They have one leader from 1921 all the way to 48, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajamin al-Husseini. And he makes a number of, there are a number of moments where he could have tried to negotiate in some way, tried to probably make 
things better and he chose not to. And so there also are those kinds of moments along the way. And you sort of feel like there are these just fundamental cultural divides that people cannot bridge. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one is I ended up huge admiration for this piece in part because I do think one of the things it does is, is it does give you a broad set of facts to share. Like the, even though the historians you talk to do disagree on sort of what some of these facts mean. There, there is a consensus kind of about what happened, which I thought was really admirable in this roundtable. But I read it with despair because depending on which perspective you choose to take in the moment you're reading it, you can easily come to understand why people are so extremely unhappy, pissed, you know, uh, you know, feel it as a cosmic wrong. Like if you are a Palestinian the destruction of the Palestinian villages, the driving away of Palestinians from their homes in what would become Israel. How can you forget that dispossession? How can you that be forgiven easily? How can that how can that be lost? But similarly, if you're Jewish, like the the fact this loose Palestinian alliance that the Mufti makes with Hitler, and the opposition to Jewish immigration to Palestine, how can that be forgiven? The refusal of Arab states to accept the mandate boundaries that then turn, you know, like basically sets off the sense within Israel, justifiable sense within Israel that we're, we're surrounded and beset by enemies set on our destruction. Like, of course they feel that way. I mean, it, it, you come away feeling like there are everyone, everyone really does have a reason to be so unhappy and they're never like, unless they, unless, unless, you know, they perform miraculous acts of, of forgetting, which I think is really important. Historical amnesia in this case, I think would be valuable. They are going to, perseverate on this and never get anywhere. I hear you for sure. I thought a lot about um, the comparison between the founding of our country and the founding of Israel. So this is, you know, obviously 1776 versus um, 1948. 1948 is much more recent, 75 years ago, give or take. And also the demographics are really different. So in our country, we decimated the native population um, and subjugated them. We did it longer ago. And proportionally speaking, there just aren't enough of them to pose any kind of real demographic challenge to, you know, American dominance. Like, America's going to keep going, um, whatever the Native Americans want to have happen. Whereas what you have in Israel-Palestine now are essentially these kind of even split. It's about 7 million Israeli Jews. It's about 7 million Palestinian Arabs um, when you count the West Bank and Gaza. And that is um, the reason why this all, you know, explodes in the way that it does, right? It's not that the grievances are any worse or better. And it's not that, you know, our country was founded in a more um, just way. It's that the realities on the ground continue there. And I mean, because there doesn't, historical amnesia, you're right, David, would be wonderful, but it's not possible. And so then I think like you have to be able to try to think about and understand the other side and reckon with what has happened and then figure out what to do with the current reality. I guess, you know, my real goal for this, um, my husband's an actual historian. I, of course, am totally not. And he as he was watching me do this and struggle with it. And he said, you know, like what you're doing is trying to present history in one take from these different vantage points and try to get the opposing viewpoints like on the page to speak to each other and look at them up next to each other. 
And that was exactly, it was what I wanted. I wanted to see like, what did these arguments look like when people actually have to make them to each other and challenge each other? What are the myths? You can see that in the piece, some of the myths. And then other people come in and say like, no, that's wrong. And I found that very helpful because I think that since we can't have historical amnesia, trying to understand this is really important. Except of course, it's so hard to think of facts in their moment, which is part of what you're trying to do with our present mindset, because they're so close. The idea that the system was rigged from the beginning um, of uh, after World War One against the Palestinians is it's so hard to think about that clearly without the contemporary um, view that that's the case, I would think, for historians. I mean, just that's always the trouble with history. It would seem to be double hard here. Do you think, I got two questions, Emily. One is, and specifically on this question of history, there was a brief little debate about whether there was a clear expression of Palestinian identity that predates World War I, which I think is necessary because it. the question is whether the, the British Balfour Declaration and the way the Brits treated the Palestinians after World War I created the sense of a Palestinian identity and therefore gets into whether this is a whether they were the causal force, the, the colonialism was the causal force, or whether there's a Palestinian identity before it that um, might have contributed to the circumstance. Is that why there's a debate over over that historical question? So that's the first question. And then the second question Wait, is- no, no, you're not allowed to ask okay, another question. That okay. was a big question. <laughs> okay, go ahead. All right, then answer that question, and then I have a follow-up. First of all, we should say the Balfour Declaration is comes from the British in 1917. They say, um, we will view with favor the establishment of a Jewish home in Palestine. Um, they don't, there are no guarantees. It's kind of, um, you know, the usual British ambiguity um, in their diplomacy of the time, but it sort of takes the Zionist um, idea and gives it some kind of international or foreign backing. It's the first it's the time. First and then major, it gets written yeah. into the mandate from the League of Nations. It's so. the first major country to do that, though, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So now answer why this question of Palestinian identity pre-World War I is important. I honestly, to me, this doesn't seem that important. Like Palestinian nationalism is very clear, certainly by the 1930s. And in the 1920s, it's both Palestinian. It also has to do with the kind of Palestine Syria notion, like a broader Arab kingdom. The guy I mentioned earlier, um, whose name is Faisal, King Faisal of Iraq, he starts off trying to be the king of Syria. And there's a um, riot called the Nebi Musa riot in 1920, which is like one of the first outbreaks of violence between Jews and Palestinians. And one of the things that the Muslim demonstrators are doing is they're carrying big signs, pictures of King Faisal. So is that Palestinian nationalism or is it pan a sort of Syrian pan-Arab nationalism? I mean, I think there are both threads going on there. And what matters to me is that certainly you have these major Arab revolts between 1936 and 39. They are saying very clearly, get the British out of here. You have betrayed us. We want self-determination. We want an end to Jewish immigration and land purchases. And that is like a very clear call. Sure, some of it is in response to Zionism, but that's because Zionism is like the challenging factor here, right? Um, and then just to, I feel like it's always important to kind of give another perspective. 
from the Zionist perspective at this point, it's the 30s. The Nazis are on the rise. Like the threats that they see to the Jewish population in Europe are staggeringly about to come true. And so, you know, one thing you also have to think about this is like there is this moment in 1939 where the British basically switch sides. They're very worried about Nazi aggression, about another major world war, and they need the Arab world to be on their side more so that they can keep the oil flowing and just like not have to worry about that part of the world as well. And they issue this white paper and they famously basically throttle Jewish immigration on the eve of the Holocaust. Nobody can come. Hardly any Jews can come anymore to Palestine. And, you know, look, like, as someone who's Jewish, you just look at that and you think like, oh my God, that was enormously consequential, that decision. And where were those Jews supposed to go? And yes, they were being turned away from many other countries as well. And as a result, 6 million of them died. So there is this incredible sense of like loss and urgency on both sides. Emily, we could literally talk about this forever, but we we should we should rap but get, maybe the people last will one. read it despite it's so the good. intro it's so good it's <laughs> okay. so good it's like the first one it is so good no i mean i my intro was not meant to be don't it was it was really about your willingness Masochism. to undertake an incredibly hard project but it's i learned more from this than i've learned from almost anything i've read in the last six months except the thing you did a few months ago well i just want to say the six historians i worked with were amazing they were so helpful and they had a really productive conversation with each other, even though they do sharply and dis- deeply disagree on certain points. They were incredibly generous with their time and in teaching me and I super appreciate it. So I hope people read it for their sakes. And at this very moment, if you're listening on Thursday, you may have to look for this piece a little bit on the New York Times website, but hopefully it'll be easy to find on Friday. It's out there. There are some weird ideas sloshing through Silicon Valley these days. Uh, VC giant Mark Andreessen wrote a banana screed about techno optimism. Really called about, he said it was about techno optimism. It was not about techno optimism, um, but it read kind of like what would happen if John Galt and Donald Trump like got loaded up on on methamphetamine in the metaverse and just like started writing things down. Uh, Elon Musk is getting more and more alarming every week. And even kind of the gentler Silicon Valley billionaires are weirder and weirder. I would point you to the recent photos of Jeff Bezos, where he looks like Pitbull. Um, Adrienne LaFrance is the executive editor of The Atlantic, and she has written The Rise of Techno-Authoritarianism, and she has an explanation for what's going on. So, Adrienne, welcome to the GabFest. What is techno-authoritarianism, and how do you distinguish it from the various other spasmodic ideologies that have run through Silicon Valley, like libertarianism and transhumanism and techno-utopianism. Right. So I think you'll see sort of flickers of some other ideologies and what I'm trying to describe here. But the thing I've been thinking about for a really long time is that we don't normally talk about Silicon Valley ideology in political terms as if it's its own distinct political way of thinking. And to me, it quite clearly is. And to your point, has become more aggrieved, darker, um, and and in an interesting way to me, because as these people have become more powerful, it's gotten more strident. And so it it seemed important to define that this is, in fact, a political movement, as well as a cultural one. Um, but, But it's not separate from politics. 
Is it a political movement in the sense of uh, an organized political movement, or is it a shared set and way of thinking that that has just kind of conglomerated around a certain set of ideas? Do you see what I'm saying? One's organized and one is shared values. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more the latter if you have to if you have to break it up that way. But one of the things that I think we need to understand in 2024 is that like the framework we've used to think about politics for so many decades is what broken. Like that doesn't, that world doesn't exist anymore. There isn't red versus blue. And so part of reckoning with the world we're actually living in is understanding that there are political forces that don't fit the frameworks that feel most familiar to us. Although in, in the past, when you had big moneyed interests, they operated kind of outside the frameworks too. That's but, totally true. But, but what you're, I think what I felt when I read your piece was the structure of our lives to the extent that it's driven by algorithms and the choices made by social media companies and the bananas ideas of people like Elon Musk about free speech in the public square are uh, encase us in this ideology in a way maybe that it wasn't true of, you know, Dale Carnegie and Cornelius Vanderbilt they had big moneyed power um, that they could use to influence the political structure, but it didn't encase each of us in our daily lives the way it is with these folks. That is a really good point, John. That is an interesting. I had I've been trying to think about why older versions of this don't have quite the same valence, and why these guys might actually be more dangerous than some. I I'll get to this in a second than some of the sort of reactionary utopians of the past. But do you buy that, Adrian? I, yeah, I think it's, I mean, yes, I think you've articulated it very well. And it's partly because the power centers have all shifted to them, right? So like, it's, they're the ones deciding the informational environment, they're driving largely the culture. And and totally, you're right, this, you know, intimate relationship we have with the technologies they're building has crept into every part of our lives and relationships. And so yes, I think it, encasing us is a really good way of putting it slash creepy. <laughs> you're right, though. So I was also thinking a lot about whether they are merely rapacious capitalists. And like, of course, we can't depend on rapacious capitalists to have all of our best interests at heart. And I mean, I have been suspicious of them for a really long time. And so I was like super receptive to your thesis. And I thought the evidence for it was great. It led me to my usual thought when capitalists are doing things that seem like they could be really bad, which is that... Of course, they have a financial incentive to build the next thing. And that it seems like it's the government's job. It's the regulators who can have an effect here. And I thought your piece was important for trying to build public support for that. But it didn't end with a kind of, you know, full-throated cry for regulation. And I was wondering, you know, when you got to the more sort of solutions part of the piece, like what your further thoughts were. Yeah, I think, well, so... I'm not a full-throated regulation kind of gal is <laughs> part of the reason. And and I don't think, I mean, there are all kinds of ways we can talk about the flaws of capitalism, obviously, but I don't think this is just like, oh, capitalism being capitalism. I think it's something different and worse. And, and I don't think capitalism is inherently bad. Just, I'm sorry, not to start like a new controversy, but just saying. Um, and so in the regulation front, so yes, I, I for a long time resisted that regulation was the right path here. And I, it still makes me uncomfortable because I honestly don't trust government to be powerful and do it the right way. Um, 
But I've been persuaded that something should be done by government to certainly in an antitrust sense and, and probably in some other areas. Um, but I don't feel that I don't feel a full throated sense of regulation is the only way. Because um, I don't, I it just, I don't think it's going to solve the the larger cultural problem we have. So when you're watching these hearings these week, this week, where Congress is trying to build momentum for legislation that would particularly address all the harms to kids, um, and you know Zuckerberg, et cetera, are up there. There are five CEOs, two of them, but not Zuckerberg. Um, came out in favor of the Kids Online Safety Act. Are you feeling nervous that like this is too much government or do you think like, yeah, it's time for them to take some kind of steps? And do you have any, I haven't looked enough into the specifics of this, these pieces of legislation, but I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Something should be done. Yes. Like if we're going to have a government, it should do something <laughs> So, like not to sound overly cynical, but, um, but I, I, you know, I, I worry that some of these measures, if, if, if a bill like this passes, that it will be considered a victory and that some people will be like, oh, we did it. We solved the problem. And, and you're looking at the actual measures and it th- it's things like, you know, an age restriction to access certain features. Well, teenagers are smart enough to lie about their age on the internet. So like, it's, I worry about the substance of what's being proposed. And then I worry about it in the other direction in terms of your, your question about whether there could be too much. I mean, you look at, for good reason, people, you look at Europe as a model for some of these ideas. And there are totally different standards there for free speech. And I would never want the United States to follow in Europe's footsteps in terms of how we view free speech. So um, so those are the concerns I have when it comes to the government stepping in in terms of what people, you know, uh, are, are publishing or have the right to publish. There has always been the case that very wealthy, very successful political donor types have lots and lots of bad ideas, ideas that are totally inconsistent with the political world. And one of the jobs of a candidate is basically you know, nod politely while they're waiting for the check to be written for all of these awful ideas. And the ideas are awful because the the smart, intelligent people have expertise in their lane and think that that ports over to this other world. And part of that is because they can get stu- stuff done quickly. George Schultz used to talk about this when he came from the private sector to the public sector. They'd be like, you know, he said, you know, when I was in the private sector, I'd say, get this done and it would get done. I come into government and like it's a, just a more complicated, funky system. This is all leading up to a question. Is there something about the way in which Silicon Valley companies are organized and these titans are the way in which they're successful that creates this mindset? And because implicit in it is if basically everybody did what my smart thinking was, we'd all be fine. Is that just regular megalomaniacal behavior that comes to any of us who lead a thing? Or is there a particularity in the way in which it's manifested in Silicon Valley organizations? That's a really good question. I think the particularity is there are, they have more power and more money. And so if you're looking at traditional political power, with the exception, maybe like the Supreme Court, there are term limits, there are, you know, you're powerful because of the position you have, not because of the massive amount of money you have. And so when you have um, sort of the, the, the old model you're describing is like a rich person has access to political power, but political power still works the way it always does in government, right? And what I'm describing is a group of people who can make decisions that change the world more profoundly than government can um, in a position of power with like 
I don't know if you're allowed to curse on this podcast, but like, just like with fuck you money who like, they don't, you know, they can do whatever they want and they don't need to appeal to anyone. I mean, the reason they have all this power is first their international reach, right? Because we don't have a strong international body to deal with them. And second, the fact that in the United States, there has not yet been a real domestic political push to um, take them on and challenge them. And so, I mean, I guess, I was paying attention to these congressional hearings this week and thinking like, okay, I hope some really smart people are figuring out actual good, smart steps to take. And it's okay with me if it's just the first crack and then they have to come back and try again later. Um, But it seems to me really important to be building political momentum um, to take them on. And there is also some hope of a kind of bipartisan challenge here too, right? Though at the same time, as I say that, I mean, I'm certainly wary of the way that Texas and Florida have taken on this issue by basically like making up this complaint that there's some anti-conservative bias going on here, because I don't think that's a good diagnosis of the problem. Totally. And again, like, do we really want, like, we don't want tech bros deciding the informational world we live in. Like, I also really don't want the government doing that. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, so, and I'm focused largely on social media here, but I I agree with you completely that it's like something should be done. And certainly when it comes to to the production of children online, I I also really think, and I I tried to get at this in my piece and it's a little bit, I mean, you guys will tell me if you think it's naive, um, but I think it's like we need individuals to stand up and, and, like decide that they that like okay start at the local level if your school your kid's school has rules about phones that seem harmful like get involved and try to make like we have to shift norms and how we have sort of let this technology wash over us is my thought I mean, I guess, sure, but I also feel like that is asking so much of parents and families like i you know my kids are older, they're in their twenties, and so I mostly raise them without this being so front and center. And I see the people with younger kids now, like to go up against the culture of phones and social media and all the stuff, however harmful it is, it is really hard. Like you, it's hard to change when everyone has embraced this thing. Taking it away is really tough. And so it does seem to me like we need people in government to like step in here. Um, And yes, there are better and worse ways to do that. But I feel like just putting it all on individuals, when you've told everyone in the world, like, go participate in this thing, then you're supposed to somehow, um, you know, get your kid not to have it. It's it. I don't know. It's not you have to be a real you have to have a lot of uh, personal strength um, and certainty about your own choices when you make your kid do something that's different from all the other kids. And, oh, then you're supposed to convince these other families to do something different from every other place. I That sounds... No, tough. it's definitely hard. And, and, and to be clear, I don't mean like we should all like throw our smartphones in the ocean and turn off the lights or whatever. Like, I actually love But I mean, maybe we should. We're not (laughs) going to. Like, maybe we would be better off without social media writ large, right? Like, there are lots of good arguments that it's a net harm, especially for young people. And, and, And yet, like, we live in this completely different culture that's become totally permissive about it. I I actually want to point to a different form of techno authoritarianism. I just don't want us to lose track of it, which is that our former colleague, Will Dobson, wrote this book, really prescient book about a decade ago, maybe even more, called The Dictator's Learning Curve, before anyone recognized how authoritarian regime, regimes were going to, there, there had been this 
sense that, oh, the internet, the technology is going to make everybody free. And it's going to cause this efflorescence of liberty and human rights all over the world. And he was like, eh, maybe not. And we see it, and you see it in the case of China, in this rigid form of censorship that really has controlled what is can be said and what can't be said and what can even almost practically be thought in a nation that is a you know a fifth of the world. And in the case of Russia, of this endless floods of propaganda and misinformation that are used to sow doubt and disorder. And those are forms of actual authoritarianism where where technology is used in the in the to 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 implement it very very effectively so i just want to note that the techno authoritarianism can take this sort of kind of crazy mark andreessen form but it also we see it taking these other forms around the world already absolutely and they're using the tools that this group of people built adrian lafrance's article in the atlantic is the rise of techno authoritarianism adrian thanks for joining us from the road no less getting up early <laughs> thank on the you road. so much Thank you so much for having me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, when you're chit-chatting with a local techno-authoritarian on your block over a delicious beverage in your post-dry January period, Emily, what will you be chattering about? I have started reading a book. Um, I really like, I mean, I'll explain why and Listeners will, I think, understand. It's called The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. It's by Michelle Wilde Anderson. And Michelle is a local government expert at Stanford Law School. And what she's done here is use storytelling about four places in the United States, which are Stockton, California, and Josephine County, Oregon, and Lawrence, Massachusetts, and then Detroit. She's using storytelling to show how the decimation of local government has affected people. So she's like hyper aware in a good way of the kind of policy moves that have been made that have created the super big holes in the social safety net, et cetera, that she's writing about. And and then she's telling you the stories of real people as a way of illustrating how that all plays out. It's just a really smart interweaving of the kind of governmental forces with the actual impact on people's lives. Um, so the fight to save the town. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? I have, uh, I guess, two little chatters. First is a super geeky thing that um, will only matter to one person, but whoever they are, I bet it really matters. So we all know we all know the power of handwriting um, and, uh, to implant ideas in our heads. I think I may have even chattered about this before, that California has now brought handwriting back um, because it's a better way to implant ideas in your heads. But what are you going to do if you use like an, an iPad or some other tablet to write? Because um, the glass of the screen, it's impossible to use a stylus on it. Well, there are these things called pen tips, which are if you use an iPad. Um, uh, I think the website is just pen.tips. Anyway, it's a, um, it's a tip for your, um, pencil on an iPad that makes it feel like you're writing on paper. Um, incredibly useful for those of us who take notes on an iPad, uh, and it's glass screen. But the actual second thing is, um, um, and sorry for the horn honking, but basically all that happens in my neighborhood is people lean on their horns. Um, the um, uh, is what's happening over two bipartisan pieces of legislation that should not go unnoticed. Um, the first is that um, we and we've talked about it, immigration legislation, which is being worked through in just the way voters say they want in the Senate um, is essentially being 
killed by the not even nominee of the Republican Party. Um, there was a time in American life when the separation of powers suggested that Congress not even treat the president almost as an equal, um, didn't want to hear his ideas, th- that Congress was the one that uh, that handled big issues and a president was definitely a second player. Now you have the president being so dominant in the American system that a nominee for a party can tell uh, – Republicans in the Senate what to do. We also see that this happening in bipartisan tax legislation that was passed Wednesday night. Um, Big deal, right? Democrats and Republicans getting together to try to help small business with tax breaks, but also help um, uh, restore the child tax credit, which did um, extraordinary work alleviating or lifting um, families above the poverty line. You have Chuck Grassley coming in and saying, you know, I think that like passing a tax bill that makes the president look good, look good and mailing out checks before the election um, means he could be reelected. And then we wouldn't be able to pass the 20, extend the 2017 Trump tax cuts. That's essentially a paraphrase of what he said. So you have a powerful Republican senator saying, I don't want to give a win to the sitting president um, on a bipartisan piece of legislation. These are, you know, it's not necessarily surprising But when you think about the structure of politics in which presidents operate, um, one in which basically all legislating has to die the year, you know, the year before an election um, because it might help the incumbent president is going to, you know, lead to a frustrated country. Um, And in this case, you're talking about major and important legislation that's dying as a result of this. Um, So um, it's good to keep your eyes out for that uh, as these pieces of legislation uh, either pass or don't pass. My chatter, another weird one. I was cleaning out, uh, I was in my parents' attic this week because we were going through my father's clothes, my mother and I, and one of the miserable sights in my mother's attic is some of my old paintings. I, in high school, I painted, uh, and a little bit after high school too. I had a great art teacher, um, really great art teacher, and painted, and I did pastels, and I loved it. Uh, and one of the paintings that I came across, I'd forgotten was of a young topless woman holding a towel that I had painted as a 17 year old in 1987 or 18 year old, 1988. And it reminded me that when I was at St. Albans in art class, they brought in a live model, a young woman, probably, you know, twenties, thirties, maybe who posed topless for a bunch of 16, 17, 18-year-old boys. And I was like thinking back and I was like, how did this happen? How did she feel about this? Was it okay? Uh, Could this happen today? I was like, no way this would happen in a private school today, a private boys school. And I I was describing this to my 15-year-old son and he was he was like, he burst into giggles. He couldn't contain himself. He thought there's, this, this is ridiculous. I was, I couldn't have done that. And I do remember, and I, the, the one piece I do remember is that, that our art teacher was magnificent. Our teacher made this part of the kind of seriousness, which, which we should take the work. If you wanted to be a true artist, you treated a model with respect and the human form is something to be admired and studied and not leered at, which is a great lesson. It was a great lesson in kind of discipline and behavior. And, you know, I don't recall, I, you know, I'm sure I found it really embarrassing. I'd probably never seen a woman's breast at the time. Uh, but I, I, uh, I just, I'm convinced that this would never happen today. 
Well, you're totally right. It would never happen today. And there is something gendered about it, which is surely worth considering. I have there to may say, have been. I have to say there may have been male models too. Well, there that makes a difference to me. I mean, the idea that the human form is part of like really important for art instruction, yeah. in, really important for art instruction seems completely worthy. I mean, I'm having – it's like an age question you're asking, right? I mean, in a college art class, I would hope that that yes. continues. And yeah. a couple of my good friends in college were nude models for the art classes at – Yale and it was like their campus job and um, I remember we talked about it but I think that they absolutely did not feel exploited in fact I remember them thinking like this was good for these future artists of the world and they were contributing in some way so I sort of feel like maybe it was great I mean if you felt like the lesson was one of discipline and respect that seems like yeah really important to the story yeah no I, I think I did and I do my I do have a, a I don't have the painting or drawing i don't know if i didn't do a, a male figure that was lost or it was sold at sotheby's for million. <laughs> ah, surely the recently. latter <laughs> but uh, <laughs> listeners thanks for chattering you've sent us a bunch of good chatters please keep them coming please email them to us at gabfest at slate.com and our listener chatter this week comes from jay lloyd of louisville kentucky hi gabfest this is jay lloyd from louisville kentucky my chatter this week is from a report in Ars Technica about an incident on a space shuttle mission in 1985. To conduct scientific experiments in space, NASA flew crew members called payload specialists, who were less rigorously vetted and trained than the professional astronauts who operated the shuttle. One of those specialists became despondent when his experiment failed, and he warned that if he wasn't given time to fix his instrument, he wasn't going to return to Earth. This evidently worried the shuttle commander enough that he duct taped the shuttle hatch closed. Although the situation was successfully resolved and the specialist eventually managed to get his experiment working, it resulted in changes on future shuttle missions, such as the installation of a lock on the hatch. And the incident raises really fascinating questions about mental health in the extreme environment of space, questions that are only more pressing now that private companies are sending more people than ever into orbit. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants, Ben Richmond, Podcast Operations Senior Director, Alicia Montgomery, Audio of Slate, comma, VP. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Slate Plus, how are you? You may have heard, you may have heard, if you're in the know, that a certain pop celebrity, singer, well-known singer, I'm not going to name any names, well-known, has I'm been not sure. seen, is she well-known? She's been seen canoodling with a football player, and the rumors are all over town. Um, so, <laughs> the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift romance has deranged a certain small subset of Americans in, in, in the MAGA right. Uh, what is going on here, John? Who's deranged? Why are they being deranged? I mean, on the one hand, having to engage with this story at all is feels like a personal defeat for me. And yet it is the height of bonkerdom. I mean, so it's it's also one of the challenges of our times. What What amount of it is the online, the extremely online, and the influencers who want to 
gig the extremely online as a way of, you know, building up their own platforms. And But then there it's hard to disconnect the extremely online from Fox News and some of its personalities who are flopping around on this issue because um, they want to, you know, excite their uh, audience because we're all stuck in a stupid attention economy in which all we do is poke at each other um, uh, to try to get people to pay attention and watch. So it's really, it's just totally awful, but it does exist. It's out there. Um, and um, that was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today.